Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to 1 Timothy. I know it says 2 Timothy up there. We will get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, but we'll start in 1 Timothy, and even then, I'm going to make you wait a little bit until we get there. Today, as I always do on the annual meeting Sunday, is to address a state of the church address that looks at the culture, it looks at the church, it reflects upon the realities of the life that we live and the realities of the challenges that we face, and we address them from a distinctly biblical standpoint. It's always dangerous to give me a few weeks to get ready to preach one message. Perhaps this is that week. I'm going to break the cardinal rule of preaching, and uh, that is don't try and cover too much, and we're going to cover a lot this morning. So you'll have to keep up. Some of it is written in your annual report, in my report particular. I use some big words in there and obscure words for a purpose. We have to be a thinking people, and even more importantly, we must be a biblically thinking people. And a failure to do that has dire consequences, not just for God's people, but for the world in which we live as well. A little bit of disclaimer, I do have a cold, I might sip a little bit of water, I might even cough for those co-conspirators of COVID-19 who are listening. I'm not here to kill everybody in the auditorium. I took a test, and I'm going to be okay. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but COVID changed everything. I'm going to show you an agenda that is taking place before our very eyes that was reconfigured and now is an all-out assault to transform the world as we know it, taking advantage of many of the gains of the oligarchy in the midst of the COVID pandemic. The reality of life, if you're paying attention, is that even those who scolded certain people about their lies are now admitting that the death numbers for COVID are probably 30% of what they once said. And it's starting to trickle out, but the damage is real, and it's been done. And there has been this, to use a phrase from the World Economic Forum, a great reset in our world today that goes hand in hand with much of what is taking place in the culture in which we live. This is a critique on that culture unashamedly. I don't expect you to applaud, and I don't even expect you to agree with everything that I said. But what I say matters in a crystal clear kind of way when we look at the age in which we serve as a local church and those who are, are called to protect and defend the integrity of Scripture, those who are called to preach the Word in season and out of season, those who are called to preach the gospel to every creature. I want to begin this morning by reflecting on and reading you a section of my annual report in, in the annual reports that are available at all of the Welcome Centers that will be really what we use in our meeting that follows. If you're a member of First Baptist, I'd encourage you to stay for that meeting. It won't be lengthy. There's some important things that we need to, to consider, but it also helps underscore and outline your responsibility as a member of the First Baptist Church in Johnson City. So if you pick up one of those, you can read it. If you're not a member and you'd still like to read what I wrote, or at least the rest of 
what I wrote, I'd be happy to send it to you via email. But in my annual report, I start this way. The world has changed dramatically in the last three years, and I see no end in sight. And our contemporary zeitgeist, even the most pernicious facts, are obfuscated, intentionally blurred. Yet there's something even more pernicious taking place. The last vestiges of the Judeo-Christian ethos are disappearing before our very eyes, not out of ignorance, but willfully. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 is on display in the contemporary landscape of the Western world. It is being revealed in an irreversible decline under the sun where there is no absolute truth or morality, just your truth and my truth. It reminds me of Frederick Nietzsche, avowed atheist and no friend to Christianity, who once penned, you have your way, I have my way, as for the right way, the correct way, the only way, it does not exist. Nietzsche saw the death of God, perhaps his most famous quote, as a great opportunity. It offered a chance to construct a new truth, not bogged down with the notion of God, nor constricted by His absolute truth, restricting the inclination and whims of sinful man. At last, Nietzsche thought man could create a world in his own image. Nietzsche warned that the first response to the paradigm shift could potentially bring confusion and chaos and panic. But given time, free of any kind of restraint, this makeover of reality would bring an ultimate freedom and personal fulfillment. The death of God meant that there was no going back to the world. We'd have to live with the consequences. So how is that working out? The perceived realization that there are no ultimately indubitable foundations of reality renders life meaningless and ultimately leads to despair and cynicism and even desperation. Seeking to replace the certainty provided by God and the absolute truth after removing God from our lives has left the world with no grounds to answer the deepest questions in life. And this ultimately leaves nothing but anguish, rendering our lives pointless in a seemingly pointless universe, a vain existence that results in, in nothingness, as the writer of Ecclesiastes warns us in the text that we've been studying. Nihilism reigns, and life is senseless and useless. The erasing of God and redefining of life has created a chaos and introduced dangers ignored at our own risk. So how do all of this end? Nietzsche gave us a glimpse at the age of 44 when he experienced a psychotic break, was institutionalized in an asylum where he spent the next 11 years his death. Detached from reality in a world of his own choosing, without hope and ultimately a victim of his own thinking. As much as the world changes, some things remain the same. Solomon writes that in Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. This judgment that 
the writer of Ecclesiastes speaks of is not something that we should celebrate. It is not something that we should take pleasure in. It is an eternal judgment that results in the banishment of souls to hell for all eternity that ought to grieve the souls of God's people, that ought to stir us to some kind of action, that ought to make us painfully aware of of what's happening in our world And even though we call reality reality and say direct difficult things to a lost and dying world, we remind ourselves that they are lost and dying, and it is our job to preach the gospel to every creature. God might save some for His glory through the preaching of the Word. So we get back to this notion of Nietzsche and some of the cultural ramifications of his statement and conclusions that ended in a, in a helpless, hopeless end for Nietzsche, we understand that there is this great reset that took place in our culture, a global socialization, if you would, that is directly tied to the World Economic Forum and the United Nations stationed in New York City. There's an agenda under the United Nations, if you've been paying attention, called the 20. 30 Agenda for Sustainable Development. It is intentionally a giant reset. It intentionally, by its own statements, has as its goal to ultimately transform the world. And to change the nature of truth, I find it fascinating that one of the core values in this United Nations document of 2030 is that they talk about the importance of truth. But we must define the terms because their truth is a truth without God. Their truth is a truth without absolutes. And their truth is a truth that has no place for God or those absolutes. And in essence, His whole plan or the whole plan is to eliminate that, that truth. This was once known as the 2020 Agenda for Sustained Agenda agenda for for the United Nations. But there was still this Judeo-Christian ethos in the West that would not tolerate the wholesale changes that were seeking to be brought about in sex and in gender and equality in beliefs and truth, and the list goes on and on and on. I would encourage you, this is all available online. Read it with a discerning eye. In my opinion… It is the essence of Revelation chapter 13 put on paper. This is their plan for the two end-time great world leaders. And their intent is to make this happen by 2030. And that's why all of this has transpired. This began in earnest in 2015 when they published their 2020 agenda. But they were unable to achieve it in such a short amount of time, so they've bought themselves some time to transform the world. In fact, they say the 2030 agenda is universal. It is transformative, and it's rights-based. It is an ambitious plan for actions for countries, the UN system, and all other actors. The agenda is the most comprehensive blueprint to date for eliminating extreme poverty, reducing inequality, and protecting the planet. What they don't tell you in their literature is this comes by coercion. The United Nations is not a law-policing kind of institute. They say so in the text. The 2030 Agenda is not legally binding. 
But countries are expected to toe the line. Countries are to nationalize and make all of the rules. Countries are to establish a hierarchy where the few tell the masses this is the way it's going to be. And those leaders will answer to the United Nations. Sounds compulsory to me. Sounds like this is a very real fear in the culture to me. It sounds like an oligarchy where the intellectual, political, and social, even educational elites, and by the way, one of the core tenets of their 13 to 17 initiatives is to change the face of education. Have you been paying attention? Reindoctrinate into Nietzsche's truth or their truth, not your truth, not the truth that is true, according to Francis Schaeffer, but their truth. Have you noticed that this has brought nothing but confusion and chaos and radical change? You see, when you eliminate foundational truth, there's nothing to build a culture upon. So you can make the rules as you go. You can change things as you make those rules, and through this notion that, that there is no God, you can redefine, redefine even those things that are perspicuous and clear. At once, have I ever been privileged to a doctor delivering a child who looks at the mother and says, we'll have to wait a few years until we know it may be a boy or a girl. The incoherence of this is alarming at best. The incoherence of this reality should be insightful to all of us as we reflect upon the pages of Scripture. But I want you to know that even in this 2030 agenda for sustainable development, the left and the progressives are still looking for a Savior. They just don't like ours. They're still looking for something to rescue them, something to give them meaning something to give them a sense of purpose, something to assure them that their life counts and their life matters, and our existence isn't a mere 70 years with a blink and then we're gone and nobody cares anymore. They're still looking for a Savior. It is a message that has a message of salvation built right into it, a message of redemption that is based on equality, a message of apocalypse. If you don't do this, the world will end. Where has Al Gore been hiding? Glad he's back. The world's going to end tomorrow. All the language of the agenda is simply a substitute for the language of Scripture, culminating in a perfect free society and eternal bliss, if you would. They borrowed capital from the Christian worldview, but cut out everything about the Christian worldview that makes our worldview and gospel the only thing that can rescue a lost and dying world. But if you don't think it's a message of salvation, you're not paying attention. And there are pages and pages and pages of that story of redemption that you can find on the UN website. And ultimately, what has transpired is very reflective of Revelation chapter 13 
And those two end-time rulers who will seize military power, consolidate political power, coerce the people through economic power, and establish a new religion. Those are the two beasts of Revelation chapter 13. You shudder when you see this start to come alive right before your very eyes. Well, what are we to do, Pastor Jim? Buckle up. Because whereas all of this first started, this push to transform society, where it all first started with COVID, now the cry and the watchword is climate change. Mark my words and listen to the language, and eventually the target and the impetus for this change will be Christianity. Not any kind of Christianity, biblical Christianity. They are the enemy of the transformation of the world. In small ways, it's already starting to happen. Most recently, the Philadelphia Flyers, a hockey team in Philadelphia, one of their members chose not to participate in Pride Night in Philadelphia. He didn't come out and protest. He sat in the locker room while the team wore all of their Pride jerseys and skated around the ice, and he was vilified in every corner of culture as we know it. His response was simple. In essence, he schooled the media by saying, I respect everybody, and I respect everybody's choices, but my choice is to stay true to myself and to my religion. What a courage it took for him to make that stand. The things that were said in the mainstream media were alarming. Go back to Russia, get involved in the world, we hope you die. You don't think that's a war against the freedom of religion? You don't, you don't think that's a shot across the bow? Don't, don't cross us. We can make your life miserable. We can cancel you. We can, we can ruin your contracts. We can take away your livelihood. That is the great reset between the World Economic Forum as co-conspirators to the 2030 UN agenda. See, you got to follow the money. And you can get people to do what you want them to do if you control the purse strings and their ability to provide for their families and even eat. Once again, Revelation chapter 13. All of this so crystal clear that even one of the beloved NFL announcers every Sunday for a long time and an NFL coach for a number of years was called out and canceled as a right-wing Extremist. Tony Dungy, if you know him, has a very clear testimony of his salvation in Jesus Christ, and he made a terrible mistake as he dared to speak out on behalf of the unborn and announced that he would be attending the March for Life in January in Washington, D.C. The network came after him. The pundits came after him. They labeled him as an extremist, a right-wing extremist, There is no room for dissenting voices. There is no room for anyone who doesn't go along with this agenda. There's no place for someone to stand who has the courage to say the emperor has no clothes. But there's a few out there willing to run the risk. Albeit, I told you that this is an incoherent plan. And any kind of system without God is incoherent and leads to disastrous kinds of ends. You saw that play out 
while I was gone for those last three weeks. When it was presented in the House, a bill called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. It came before the House of the Representatives, and it was simply to assure that if a child survived an attempt at abortion, that the medical profession would have to adhere to their Hippocratic oath and render aid to that child who was born alive in spite of the efforts to take the life of that child. Nearly every single House Democrat voted against that legislation and said no. Representative Jerry Nadler of New York, you can claim him, I won't, argued that the bill would set up new requirements that would directly interfere with the doctor's medical judgments and dictate a medical standard of care that may not be appropriate in all circumstances. Some of these children should die. We shouldn't, we shouldn't ask doctors to, to, to make that decision or to make that call. He went on to say in a way only he could, the problem with this bill is that it endangers infants. What are you talking about? It's nonsense, but in a world without God, it's the transformation of a culture. Where we live in a culture today that is a culture that is almost a death culture with no sense of worth, value, and dignity of human beings. Now, for some who come up and try and clarify his comments, save your breath, there is no clarifying his lunacy. It'll hurt the infants, as opposed to abortion, I suppose. How did we get here? How did this happen? Scriptures warn us. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is not the first nor the last time that we will experience the clash of a culture and genuine faith. This has been the reality from Genesis chapter 3 under every human government, and it will remain our reality today. And there is an intersect between genuine faith, and I'm not just talking about faith. This UN agenda speaks of faith as well, but in an alarming way. And if you read through what they're saying, here's what they're telling you. And it's the ecumenicism of Revelation chapter 13. Faith is established for what we all agree on to be true. And what we don't agree on must be silenced. We're on the front lines of this battle. For those who think I'm this old-time fundamental Bible kind of thumper guy, I will use an endearing term of R.C. Sproul. What's wrong with you people? I have a God who sits on the throne and you will not be trifled with. 
And I have a responsibility to be his spokesman to the people of First Baptist Church in Johnson City, connecting the dots and preparing you for this clash that has ultimate and serious consequences, and to ask and inform you how this even happened. I'll take you back to a lengthy study that we will finish this spring. There is nothing new under the sun. This has been the battle and the clash for the ages that began in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say that? He's afraid that he's going to lose his power and influence. He's afraid that if you eat from the tree of good and evil, you will be like him. That's the only way and the only reason he's reigning on your parade. And that lie is the same lie being retold in a different fashion altogether today but one that is eschatological, at least in my opinion, there is nothing new under the sun. And every page of the book, as you read the story of redemption, it points to not social causes and not political causes nor any other cause. The problem in the world today is sin, and the answer is the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. End of story. We live in a Romans 1 world that has exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we're living in the tragic age of ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, and the haunting words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, God gave them up. They have sealed their fate, and the consequences are eternal. Church doesn't want to hear this. Just tell us good things. Just tell us the good people. Tell us that everything's going to work out in the end, Pastor Jim. Why are you telling us this? Because we're in a battle. We have to prepare for that battle. We have to put the armor on, and we need to engage the culture. But we cannot make the mistake of the moral majority in the 80s and the 90s. Listen carefully. This is not a political battle. This is a battle for the souls of men. You understand the difference? And if it's a political battle, you use political means. But if it's a battle for the souls of men, you use the gospel of Jesus Christ for His glory alone. That's the only answer for a world that has lost its way. And time and time again through the history of God's people, we see this playing out. When we look at the realities of God's people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, And in the New Testament, the saved church, we see that invested in both Israel and the church is the truth of God and the Word of God. But historically, as you follow the nation of Israel, and as you follow along in some of their revolts and rebellions against this very God that protected and that they were serving, you will see that the very first thing that took place in the nation of Israel when they wandered and fell into desperate sin as they, they stopped listening to the Word. They stopped believing the Word. They stopped living according to the Word. And God would sometimes use pagan nations to judge Israel because they weren't listening. Hosea says it simply and best. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It was there they weren't paying attention. They weren't listening. They, like Nietzsche, had a better way. They fell prey to the attacks of the evil one. Did God really say that? 
time and time and time again. We see them falling under the judgment of God and, and falling under the, those, those dire judgments that came from pagan people because of their low view of the Scripture. And by the way, if you have a low view of Scripture, it is directly tied to your low view of God. I have a God who is sovereign and absolutely true, and He never lies, and everything He told us in the book is right. And if you don't believe that, your God and my God are not the same God. You have a low view of God. He is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And when He speaks, you better listen. Because in the end of the day, He's in charge. You say, in charge? What are you talking about, Pastor Jim, if he was in charge? Why are we dealing with this today? Because we get away from the book. And there are lapses in the history of God's people, both in Israel and in the church at large, where we get distracted and we start to do something that is good, but it's not best. In ministry based on gummy bears and gimmicks and not thus saith the Lord. This is not an introduction of a boycott of gummy bears. If you like them, good for you. That's not what we're about. It's not what I'm about. Perhaps you've noticed that in this first 20 minutes. The history of God's people, there's been a failure to understand that God invests His power of change in His Word. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by that Word. But how will the world know about that Word if there is nobody sent? How will they know if the messenger is no longer speaking that Word? How will they know if that Word is transpired or that Word in, in some sense is changed to our own willful recollections or we try and explain what God really meant? You know what He meant? He meant exactly what He said. When the Bible speaks, God is speaking. And more often than not, He is speaking clearly. We can lament the world and point the blame, but I wonder if it's God's people who have the most culpability in this, because as we move away from the Word, there's nothing left for a lost and dying world. We must be people of the book. God invests His, His glorious, sovereign power in the pages of Scripture, and we must be people of the book, not people of politics. Not people of current events, people of the book. James Lindsay, an avowed atheist, homosexual, has a better grasp on what's happening in our culture today than sometimes we do as God's people who should know better if you read the story. James Lindsay talks about the church in a recent podcast in which he is interviewed and in talking about the church, he, he brings up the notion of woke Christianity, and woke Christianity is a Christianity that is kowtowing to this universal agenda of the United Nations and sex and gender and all, all kinds of other things. And he warns that the only church that will be tolerated under the United Nations and this great reset will be the woke church. In fact, he said this in his podcast, woke Christianity will be held up as the only true church, whereas every church that is truly biblical and that is standing against all of this stuff will basically be turned into a reactionary church or the Westboro Baptist Church. Do you know anything about that church? 
They're infamous. In the culture today, for the way they're approaching cultural change, creating a false sense of Christianity in the world today. Carry signs and pickets, God hates, fill in the blank. God this, fill in the blank. That's, that's not us. That's not me. But they will paint you with that picture as they did Tony John Dungy and as they did the hockey player for the Philadelphia Flyers. They're coming for all of us. And if and when we fail to go along with the agenda, we will be dismissed as reactionary and out of touch. But let me tell you what my greatest concern is. We will be seen that way within the greater ranks of evangelicalism. Somehow the rest of the Christians are going to turn on us. And that's a direct result of a turning first from the truth that sets us free, that we might be free indeed. Let me ask you a question this morning. Could you ever truly grasp the loving kindness of Christ until you have seen the wickedness of the pagan on earth? Can you? Light becomes brighter when you see the darkness. Truth becomes true truth when you see untruth and error. The glory of our King becomes a Shekinah glowing glory when we compare it to a dark and pagan culture in which we live. Sometimes our low view of God is that our thinking is skewed in such a way that we don't see the world as the way it really is. What a horribly broken place. That's what makes the promises of God that much more special, doesn't it? What a horribly broken place. The second half of that, though, is important. Can you ever truly grasp the loving kindness of Christ? If you don't see yourself as you really are? Often, the Apostle Paul comes to mind, even in my life as a believer committed to the Word, how wretched man that I am. To see myself in that light makes the glory of my King so much brighter, makes the story of the gospel so much more palatable, and it makes the job of the church to preach the gospel to every creature so much more doable when we see the glory of our King. 250 different times in the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament use the word hased. It's a guttural word in the beginning. If I use that guttural tome, I'll cough the rest of the time, take my word for it. And it's a unique Hebrew word. There is no real translation in the English that captures the full essence of that word. It has been interpreted as mercy and kindness, goodness and faithfulness, even, even loyalty. More often than not, it's called the steadfast love of God, the loyal love of God, or God's loving kindness. 
And it's the kind of loving kindness that God's people Israel experienced. And Exodus 34 says, the Lord passed before him, being Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, the children, the children's children to the third generation. This is an interesting text. It is God declaring that I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I will never stop loving you. But there are consequences to behavior. There are consequences to choices. And in Exodus chapter 34, it comes on the heels. One of the greatest examples of idolatry, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they had fashioned a golden calf, and they were offering sacrifices and worshiping the golden calf. God should have killed them out and annihilated them, but He reminds them, I love you with an everlasting love. You're my people. You're my people. That's a glorious message, and one that every one of you needs to hear when we paint a clear picture of the world today. Don't think of that clear picture. Let's focus on the glory of our King and the everlasting love that He doesn't give up on us ever, ever, ever. And if you're a believer and don't believe in the security of the believer, I fear for you. You will not make it in this world. Those who are saved by the King will be kept for eternity for the glory of God, and someday we will stand in the presence of our King. And you know why? It has nothing to do with you. He has loved you with an everlasting love, and He never stops loving you. So what does it matter if they hate us? Numbers. Chapter 14, the Bible says, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting again this same affliction as a result of sin. There's this tendency then for us to ask, so what's the big deal, Pastor Jim? God never stops loving. I can continue in my sin because He's still going to love me. Paul answers it pretty succinctly in Romans chapter 6. God forbid. No excuse. No, don't continue in your sin. 1 Timothy chapter 1. told you I'd get there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's writing to a pastor to prepare him for the time and age in which he would live, his leadership, assuming the role from the Apostle Paul for the carrying out of the gospel. And I find some fascinating texts here, and we will spend the rest of our time, probably 10 minutes or more, looking through this text of First and Second Timothy and reminding you of what matters most. He writes in verse 3 of chapter 1, 1 Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and godly genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. It seems like Paul understands the waywardness of God's people in the Old and the New Testament always begins with a departure from the Word. So he says to this young pastor, don't ever get away from the book. 
Don't redefine the book. Don't, don't, don't look at the book as to, to how you can mold it and shape it into the image of your culture. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, but without understanding either of what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You can be confident and passionate and dead wrong if you can't support it through the Word. So we find in this passage of Scripture and the preparation of this man for the times in which he could live, <clears throat> that Timothy needed to beware of false teachers, and he needed a, a healthy, realistic look at the pagan culture in which he lived. He speaks of that in some of the following verses in that text. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says something that I think is so critically important in our age today. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to a service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Isn't that glorious? Paul says, now listen, you got to watch for these false teachers and these evil impostors out there. But while you're watching and crying from the watchtower of the dangers of the world, don't ever forget where you've come from, Paul. You were the chief of sinners, gloriously saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen how Paul describes his life after salvation. But I receive mercy. There is that, that loving kindness, that goodness of God. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, foremost sinner, as you go back in the text, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul said, I have been set out as an example of a terrible person saved through the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, and He is working in my life and reminding me from whence I've come. It's the only thing that gives me a balanced perspective as I look at the world and yet cling to the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. Paul is talking about abundant grace and the testimony of his people to this young pastor. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he calls us to pray for all people. The pagans, Pastor Jim? Assumes to me that's what he means by all, doesn't it? Don't they need to be saved by the same grace and mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ? He speaks to the importance of prayer, the importance of putting out through the Word that, that, that call to salvation for, for those who desire salvation will come to the knowledge of the truth. And you can call out the pagan world given over to their debased mind yet still have compassion in your heart towards them and their need of a Savior. We live in a church today that says, if you love, you don't say anything bad. That's baloney. You got to say the bad or you'll never understand the good. 
And if you don't see yourself the way you once were, you'll never understand the glory in Christ Jesus. Paul calls us to pray. In chapter 3, he gives us the message of the gospel. In all times and cultures, we spend a considerable amount of time in Christmas talking about this. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Chapter 3, verse 16, He, meaning Christ, was manifest in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the Jesus that we proclaim, not just in our speech, but in our lives as testimonies of grace. He continues, to instruct and warn Timothy about those inside who were never really part of us in chapter 4. The Spirit expressly says, and at the latter time some will depart from the faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. Paul is saying, listen, for those who depart from the truth, for those who water down the truth, for those who rehearse the words of Satan himself, yea, hath God said, they will be abounding in the latter days. They will have platforms in the latter days. They will become celebrities in the latter days. Be careful who you follow and what you hear. As Paul warns him of that, he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6 about this world and its search for genuine contentment. He says in verse 2, those who are believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers, rather they must serve all the better. Since those who benefit from their good service are believers and beloved, here's what he says, teach these things. And if anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. She's saying, if God is who you say He is, and if you really believe the book, You have everything in Christ, regardless of what you have in this temporal world of existence. And the source of your contentment isn't political change or shift. The source of your contentment isn't the, the, the vengeful justice on a pagan world. The source, the source of your contentment is Christ alone. So Paul calls upon Timothy in chapter 6 to fight the good fight. Stay in the battle. Speak the truth. Preach the world. But understand this in 2 Timothy 3, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, no self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Timothy, you're in a battle, and you're in a fight, and if you keep on keeping on believing as what you believed and continuing that belief that you had from a child, verses 14 and on in chapter 3, you will do what I am commissioning you to do right now, Timothy, chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming where they will not endure sound teaching. It is not coming, it is here. How then? How then shall we live? There will be things in our life, there will be things in our world, there will be things on the horizon that will become more and more difficult for those who will sustain and maintain a fidelity to the truth. Just as they come off against the high-profile people, they will come after the little guys as well. There's going to be no dissenting voice in the pagan agenda of the evil one in the world in which we live. We must take to heed the Scripture that teaches that in this world you will have persecution. But don't worry. I said, I've got it. I've got it. It's going to be okay. In this world, as a result of sin, you will deal with treacherous disease. You will deal with personal loss in ways that you can't even imagine. You will deal with in your heart and mind unmentionable things crushed in your spirit, wondering where you fit and if you even belong in this culture today. But I want you to know that in the midst of all of that, there is a God who loves you unconditionally, and He will never stop loving you, and He will always keep His promises. But His promises aren't for a better life today. His promises are for that life that we look forward to tomorrow, and it's assured through the blood of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul writes, God in His providence has the power and the will to work all things together for good for His own people. But this does not mean that everything that happens to us in itself is good. Really bad things do happen to us. But they're only approximately bad. They're never ultimately bad. That is, they are bad only in the short term, never in the long term. Because of the triumph of God's goodness in all things, He is able to bring good for us out of the bad. He turns our tragedies into supreme blessings. And even in the worst of times, when we cast light on the darkness, we see the brightness of the glory of our King and have the constant assurance 
of the said love of God where He will never leave us or forsake us. And no matter what happens in this lifetime, He has sealed us with the promise of His Holy Spirit, and we shall see God. How else do you live in this world? How else do you deal with what's happening? How else, other than living eschatologically, a better day is coming in the midst of God's steadfast love and in a world crushed by the weight of sin and blinded to the truth. You have been made privy to the truth. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. God loves you with an everlasting love. He will never give up on you. And though you face bad and troublesome times, we win in the end. Oh, no, no, we don't win. He does. For He's King of kings and Lord of lords, and every knee shall bow, including the UN. So we live not with our head in the sand, what a wonderful world. No, you need a healthy glimpse of the darkness of the world, and then you need to see the glory of God. And I don't think they're separate things. I think they're together. When you see the darkness, you see the glory of the King in a way that you've never seen before. So no matter how bad or how hard or how ugly or how difficult all of this might be, in the days that lie ahead, I want you to know that a better, better day is coming. So what do we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also bring with him and give us graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us in His everlasting kindness and love. Shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? That is written, we, for His sake, are killed all the day long, and we're guarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us with an everlasting love. And I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, and all of creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. It is that that sustains us in the day and age in which we live. May He find us faithful for His glory indeed. Father, bless us. What a train wreck. Just the culture, but Your people falling away from the truth and the Word, a reimagining a wokeness that leads to death and destruction in terms that we've never seen or experienced before. The light must come from your people. The light must be rooted in the book and in the Word. Give us the eyes to see the darkness of the world. Give us the faith to see the glory of our King. Help us to understand that they're not mutually exclusive, and as hard as life gets, it makes our union with Christ so much more blessed and blessed. Remind us the glorious things that you've done for us. 
Remind us that we are in the palm of your hand and no one can pluck us from that hand. Remind us that in spite of the evildoers and the pagans of this age, they cannot touch us. Oh, they can take our mind, but they cannot take the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will call a remnant to be faithful, as Paul called Timothy to be faithful, but that demands that we see the world as it is, demands that we're reminded of who we are. A wretched man rescued by the glory of the King. May I rest in the steadfast love of Christ and in the hope that someday everything's going to be okay. Living as if a better day is coming. Living with a healthy dose of reality. And committed to faithfulness until the time we hear the sound of the trumpet. May you receive the praise and the honor and the glory. For you are our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.